Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump wants to send the National Guard. will consider more effective ways to stop the flow of migrants from Central America. A small Hungarian town's guilt is the topic of a new film, 1945. Film contributor Milos Dalek talks with the director, Ferenc Torek, and we'll hear from two Chicagoans who helped put together the U.S. contribution to the Venice Architectural Biennale on Weekend Passport. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. President Trump says a large portion of the two to 4,000 National Guard members he wants to send to the U.S.-Mexico border will probably stay until he gets his wall. The president launched into action after he heard about Central American migrants making their way through Mexico. Most of those people were from Honduras. We're going to talk with Dana Frank, professor of history with the University of California at Santa Cruz, and we've talked to her before about Honduras in the program. Thanks for joining us again, Dana. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I it, uh, it's been interesting to see Donald Trump operate here in the last few days on this issue. Uh, could you go back to November and remind people what happened there and what the U.S. position was on the election in Honduras? Yeah, as people may remember, um, uh, President Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, ran for office illegally in violation of the Honduran Constitution, which explicitly forbids re-election or even advocating if you're the current president. And, they, and when the election results came in on November 26th, it was very clear that uh, a man named Salvador Vestrala of United Opposition was way ahead, at which point on Orlando Hernandez's government shut down the computers and stopped releasing information after 57% of the vote had come in and then gradually released um Release numbers over the next uh, week and a half that suddenly found that at the end, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the sitting president, um, had, quote unquote, won by 1.5 percent. Um, the Organization of American States reviewed it and said that this was um, not a legitimate outcome and there should be a new election. Um, but the United States uh, blessed that election and Trump uh, sent, in fact, um, about a month ago, sent Nikki Haley, the U.N. ambassador from the United States, to go support Juan Orlando Hernandez and very explicitly. Um, but in response to that election, enormous protests rose up because people were just full of frustration and anger and grief about this election being so baldly uh, baldly stolen. It was just this one more horrible shock to the hundred people who are dealing with this dictatorship of Juan Orlando Hernandez and um, so it it should be no surprise that to, to that the the there are migrants fleeing uh, Honduras. There there's a lot of people who are suffering. There's political persecution. I talked with a man uh, who is running uh, a relief station in Mexico in in Chiapas, and he talked about the kinds of people who are coming to his um, his relief station. Uh, there's a lot of Hondurans who are just suffering, and they have to get out. And they're not just sort of randomly suffering. suffering. I mean, they're very explicitly critical and actually chanting Puerto Ho, which is the Juan Orlando Hernandez out slogan of the opposition for many years. And his regime and the, uh, the various regimes 
since the continuous close coup regime since 2009, when a coup overthrew democratically erected President Manuel Zelaya. These 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 elites that are running the government are just robbing the coppers dry. They've destroyed the state in many ways. There's no almost no functioning criminal justice system. And the police and military are corrupt from top to bottom and involved in all kinds of criminal activity, including extrajudicial killings. And in that context, the gangs are very interlocked with the police and the government. And the gangs kill people. They're extorting small businesses. And there's very little functioning economy. So people are I really think it's important to understand that these Hondurans and their 80 percent of the people in the caravan are refugees. The refugees of the government, the United States, is money into. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, does uh, give aid to the Honduran government, and strangely enough, President Trump threatened to cut off aid uh, <laughs> once over drugs. Uh, when Nikki Haley was visiting, she had to make up for his comments on, uh, you know, cutting off aid because he thinks they're pouring drugs into the country. And then uh, just recently, he wanted to cut off aid again over the over the migrants issue. Um, this is something people who oppose Juan Orlando Hernandez would agree with. Well, I think you do need to distinguish between security aid and aid to the central government and some humanitarian aid that I think we would agree should keep flowing. So first of all, you have to distinguish the different kinds of aid. But absolutely, in fact, uh, many uh, there are 71 members of Congress and uh, um, with tremendous leadership um, from Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky from Chicago um, asking that police and military aid to be suspended. There's, again, 70 or 71 members of Congress on a bill demanding that. And also a lot of there's money on hold and con- Congress is put on hold um, and there are conditions on the aid already in place. And so. This is a big demand of people who support justice and democracy in Honduras that the security aid in particular will be cut. Now, what what Trump is doing, he's just like slashing out and part of these sort of blanket, those are bad people down there thing that he does to rile up his base. I mean, most outrageously, yesterday he tweeted that, uh, I'm getting the dates mixed up, but, you know, he tweeted that the that there was people in the caravan were all being raped at unbelievable levels. I mean, he made this up out of whole cloth as part of his really sicko racist alarmism about Mexicans being raped. So he's just flinging it out there um, and actually ironically missing the point that he's aligned with Juan Orlando, Orlando Hernandez's repressive machine. Uh, we do have a clip of President Trump, and he mentioned this in, in his uh, talk in Maryland uh, the other day, and here he is. Remember my opening remarks at Trump Tower when I opened? Everybody said, oh, he was so tough, and I used the word rape. And yesterday it came out where this journey coming up, women are raped at levels that nobody's ever seen before. They don't want to mention that. So, uh, so there he is. Uh, I don't know what to make of this. He's uh, <laughs> well. It's it's so chilling just to hear him talk that way. You can see how slick he is. He's sort of prominent. At the one hand, sort of on the side of pe- women who have been raped, and yet, of course, here's this man with many, many um, allegations, credible allegations of sexual assault and, sex- and sexual harassment. And so, coming from him, I think it's especially chilling. But it's also he's playing into this stereotype that he himself has flung about before, and which is that somehow Mexicans are rapists, or it's sort of ambiguous, are the Central Americans rapists, you know? And it's sort of, it's, I think it is like actually one of the most chilling and sick things that he's said since his campaign. Now, there's, um, 
there's security issues when um, migrants move through Mexico. Uh, people have talked about that before, but it's usually they're usually uh, criminal elements who are taking advantage of them, uh, security officials who are taking advantage of them. Yeah, it's incredibly dangerous to cross whether you're on foot or on bus or whether many people move on the trains, on the top of trains, so you get the the, the assaults on those people are incredible. And, pe- and the drug cartels also pick people off, force them to work for them. I mean, it's a very terrifying thing to try, which and Hondurans and Southern Central Americans know exactly how dangerous it is, and which underscores how dangerous it is Honduras if they would take the risk anyway. So for many years, people have moved in caravans, this particular group uh, that organized this one or is supporting it has been doing this for five years and it's a way of forming of of safety and um, of course I want to underscore that many of those people in fact most of them are are looking for safe haven within Mexico and also they are not some invading army about to try to cross the border they're in fact those that want to come to the United States are seeking asylum in the United States and plan to turn themselves over to the authorities if they do reach the U.S. border so they're not going to like they're not planning to sneak in or anything. And these people have really strong cases for asylum. I mean, one of them is a former Congress member who's, who's saying that she stays, she'd get killed. Other people are underscoring that, you know, gangs and police are killing people in their neighborhoods. And so if you actually talk to the people, you can see the ways in which they are asylum speaker, seekers that are, in fact, refugees. And refugees, in part, not just from Juan Alondra Hernandez and the Honduran government and security forces, but from U.S. the U.S. support for that. I'm talking with Dana Frank from the University of California at Santa Cruz, and we're talking about Honduras and the migrants that were crossing in Mexico and the U.S. response to that, which is going to be sending out the National Guard, a few thousand National Guard people, to the U.S. border, apparently. Uh, What would be an effective response if you wanted to change the dynamic here, Dana, and could wave a magic wand? What would it be? Well, you first have to speak to the immigration issue that here's, here's Trump. You have to say this is not a threat to the United States. In fact, it's a, it's a threat to the United States to be attacking these people, to be militarizing. I mean, we haven't talked about him saying he's now sending in the National Guard to, quote, unquote, protect the border and attacking the DREAM Act, which, of course, the DREAM Act has nothing to do with these people who aren't even in the country yet. I mean, I think we have to we have to so we have to have progressive immigration reform laws we have to stop the militarization of the border we have to pass the dream act and support temporary protected status for the hondurans and the salvadorans so that those folks can stay in the united states so first of all that's there in terms of policy within honduras i think it's really important the united states should not recognize the outcome of the election and should support the organization of american states secretary general amago in calling for a new election a free and fair election overseen by international observers, and we should cut all funding to the central government, especially its security forces, except for humanitarian aid. And there is, in fact, a lot of support for that in Congress and and all over the country. And I want to thank all the people in Illinois that have been so great um, in supporting uh, this ask in in Chicago. And I want to shout out to La Voz de de Abajo and um, the Chicago Religious Leadership Network. And again, to Congresswoman Schakowsky, who's been such a wonderful lead on issue. Yeah, no, I couldn't help but notice that um, Juan Orlando Hernandez is um, going to uh, Israel's Independence Day event. He's going to be the first foreign leader honored at Israel's Independence Day event, and Honduras was one of the eight countries that opposed the U.N. uh, General Assembly resolution that uh, condemned the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Uh, He's... um, 
he should be Donald Trump's friend, right? He should be, this is like something friendly <laughs> that he did to Donald Trump. At the end of that, which also underscores how out of control in general Trump is, like on any of these. Because, you know, many people would say, you know, Trump never met a, a repressive dictator he didn't like, <laughs> like the character in the Philippines and all that, you know. And so, yes, that's what's so ironic about, I mean, whether he would actually follow through on this cut the aid, I think these things just sort of blurred out of his mouth. And uh, he, his, I'm sure that his policy people, you know, are thinking, oh, no, what do we do here? But, of course, there are no policy, almost no policy people left on Latin America. Uh, most of all the key, almost all the key figures have left the State Department. And, um, and you know, the man mostly calling shots on Central America is John Kelly and chief of staff. And he used to be the head of the U.S. Southern Command. And Kelly has said last spring, last May, that Juan Orlando Hernandez was a great guy and a good friend. And he's said that Juan Orlando Hernandez was doing a magnificent job of fighting drugs in the past. And uh, we have tremendous, uh, considerable evidence that Juan Orlando and his brother um, and top figures in the government are um, very much tied in with drug trafficking. And so that, you know, that tells you about who's running the show at the White House. And, you know, in terms of the Israel question, Nikki Haley's visit was clearly part of the payoff for Honduras, as well as Guatemala supporting moving the Embassy, U.S. Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Uh, people may not know that Israel gave loan guarantees and funding to Honduras in the name of an amount of 209 million a year and a half ago um, to build to for arms and for a military ship for mm. the Honduran Navy. And so, the 209 million is a whole lot of money. Um, and so, there's also major funding from Israel for Honduras. So, it's not just a diplomatic question. Have you been surprised about all the coverage uh, uh, about this? It, it doesn't seem to take into account all the time that uh, Honduras is an incredible mess that the U.S. is participating in. Well, you know, in some ways, the, the only good side to what Trump's, Trump's uh, Twitter attack all week is that, and his speech is that it does call attention to Honduras because I don't think people understand that Honduras is very emblematic of U.S. policy in Honduras, and this isn't just a Trump administration. It was Obama and Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, that have supported the post-coup regime very clearly. And this is the U.S. you know, model. to support. This is like the long pattern, unfortunately, to support dictators in Central America because Honduras has always been the U.S.'s strongest ally um, in, in Central America. There's an important military base there. And so they sort of keep hoping that nobody's going to notice that this repressive regime that we're supporting down there. But, of course, the Hondurans are well aware of it, as are the other Central Americans. So, I mean, I hope people this moment, will, of course, you know, um, will be one when people will actually pay attention to Honduras and to Latin America in general. Trump is, in fact, going to Peru on the, not this weekend, the one after, for the Summit of the Americas. And so there's going to be a brief moment of attention to Central America. And we want to say, you know, what exactly is we doing here in Honduras and also all kinds of other uh, uh, what I would say nefarious activities throughout Latin America. Uh, well, thanks very much for joining us. Dana Frank, professor of history with the University of California at Santa Cruz and talking about Honduras and the United States and some of the migrants moving through Mexico. Thanks a lot for joining us. Okay, thanks. I just want to say there's a great story in BuzzFeed yesterday by Carlos Zabludovsky about why the Hondurans are fleeing if people are interested. Yep. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dana.
Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and he'll talk with the director of the new film, 1945. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Holocaust is played out in film on many prominent occasions. But what we don't always see is what happened right after the Nazis retreated from occupied countries. WBEZ film contributor Milos Stalik recently talked with filmmaker Ferenc Torak about his new film, 1945. It looks at how the Hungarians reckoned with their role in the Holocaust one year after the Nazis retreated. So, Ferenc, your new film, 1945, actually has a very simple premise. Two strangers arrive on a train, walk behind a carriage, horse-drawn carriage, to bury something, and this unsettles the whole village, which had been, as we found find out, complicit in what had happened during the war. Yeah, seems to be a simple story like a western in a high noon is a train arriving in in a hot summer day but this summer is after the second world war after the holocaust in 1945 and is a special dramatic period of our history and the global history so it's a really short story in the running time of the movie. It's a 90-minute movie, but it's a only two or three hours drama, like Antigone. Like a Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy, yeah, or a Western movie. It's uh-huh. the same dramaturgy. is really two or three hours, but the, the past is really important because one year before, 44, in the same village was the deportation of the Jews and war. So give us a 30-second history of Jews in Hungary. Uh, Hungary had already been a Nazi-sympathizing state, right, but came relatively late to the deportation of the Jews to concentration camps. But it was massive because there were about 800,000 Jews in Hungary and about half died. Mostly, or half million, Mm -hmm. we say, and and mostly the countryside religious Jews died in the deportation. So it's a story what wrote Gabor Tessanto is is based on a short story, it's a fiction, and is a respect for the countryside religious Jews because it's absolutely disappeared from Hungary for 70 years. So completely... This this whole subject of what the villagers or what, what the Hungarians did with Jewish property, with with informing on the Jews... All of that has been a taboo subject in Hungary. Yeah, it was in the last 70 years. During the communist period, every property question was under the carpet. And of course, the point of view of the historic filmmakers and in the last 10 years uh, turned to the tough questions. So it's not a romantical or... um, 
emotional part of the subject is a real 21st century tough point of view is a modern point of view and, uh, and of course is a is a straight story is a simple story so you 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 read the story first before it was a script or how did you come to this film yeah it was 2004 when uh, gabor published a short story in a book it was only 15 pages and uh, we are old friends and we be neighbors in the in the same street in budapest and i uh, called him i want to make a movie about this because it's a really really important question and a really important part of the, our history is a missing chain between the two dictatorship after the fascists because in that time when the, the story in the movie the Nazis gone and the Russian army arrived, occupied the country. But in that time, the Russian were the positive figures, the liberators, or sometimes nobody knows they, they will be stay 40 years. So, so it's a really important. And of course, it's a really visual short story was. So is a I watched the black and white pictures. It's not a dialogue movie. In black and white pictures, like in photographs, period photographs. Yeah, or? when I, I, I was read, uh, when you did research. Re, re, yeah, I, I feel I feel is a black and white movie, and is a kind well, of a western. Why? 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 Maybe the collective memories about that time of the news and the uh, the photographs from the families and the, so is and the, the same age movies like the Italian neorealism Rossellini Visconti after the war realistic movie and the westerns in uh, the United States for example uh, the high noon in after the war period is a black and white atmosphere mm-hmm. so that's why and of course, the black and white is much straight, much uh, simple for a uh, drama. Is, it's is more it, emotional. I think so, emotional and much more focused. So it's, it's a concentrate mm-hmm. type of the filmmaking. So I had a big discussion with a good friend of mine, Harriet Meyer, about this, about the walking in the film, because there's so much arrival, the two Jews, older man, somebody who could be his son in a way, walking behind this carriage, and then, of course, walking back. Talk about the significance of walking in the film. Of course, the walking is a spiritual mission, and the spiritual wave of the filmmaking is is not about the dialogues, but about the distance, about the movements, about the shadows and the sun. So... These two characters in a different level in that period, everybody from the families lose in the camps. They focus just for spiritual thinking, so not intact in the drama. The village, the guilty village around them, uh, much more dialogue, much more... um, different shades of the the society but because they don't they don't really speak but there's still a certain emotion all of the complicity of the villagers who are all guilty this this shame of what they had done they have to face and of course also the uncertainty of what the jews have come for right we don't know whether yeah. they want their house back they want their property back whether they're there for vengeance so they are kind of the dark angels in a way yeah, yeah. absolutely 
of course we concentrate to show the shades of the society different kind of attitudes di- different kind of relations for the guild of course the m- head of the mafia who manipulated the other guys in the small society much more involved to the past crime and also a young generation and much more innocent so it's not only a collective guilds or something like that we focus for the each characters and the each stories You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stalik speaking with filmmaker Ferenc Torok about his new film, 1945, which opens today. There's a kind of a contrary story because the one event that's also happening on the same day is that there's a wedding planned. So this kind of acts as a contrast. Yeah, because after the short story, we build up a long script and the wedding we need to use to show the other part of the village and other faces and it's really important in a in a wedding situation youngsters old people different kind of faces and 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 also is important is a first wedding after the war is a positive day for the village people and is a kind of a celebration and the son of the clerk is involved and he's the young man who comes out as the one positive figure i mean who really in this revelation decides to do something else yeah the younger generation we need to show in in this model of the society some hope he can l- recognize the crime of the father's generation and uh, want to say no and uh, leave the small village to abroad maybe to France or the United States so so okay don't spoilering but uh, he's a positive character so you didn't grow up during you're much younger than World War II was over so this is not your personal history what fascinates you what brings you to it personally what do you see in it personally we got a big responsibility about this subject for for our personal life so we got children i'm close to 50 now mm-hmm. my son close to 20 so in in this story a lot of uh, father and son uh, symbolic uh, situation the clerk and the son the Jew and the son and the, uh, the car driver and the son and this what is the responsibility to 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 tell our children about our grandfather's story Th- that's my point of view How important is this film for the Jewish community in Hungary? We got a lot of prize from the Jewish community and several which, Jewish which festivals. Is still, which is an active community, relatively. Yeah, relatively uh, active in Hungary, close to 100,000 uh, Jews, and, and but not really religious because the communist time, is it, is, it was changed. Assimilation. Uh, Yeah, but in the younger generation in the last 10 or 20 years something came back. The synagogue started to work. So so it's much better now, I think. But at the same time it's happening in Hungary which is turned politically right. So how important is it 
to show this film against the rising anti-Semitism, which is happening all across Central Europe, certainly, and the rest of Europe and much of the of world. Of course, definitely. That's why the, the, the important actuality of the movie, because in the, w- with the liberal democracy and with the um, new Jewish life in Hungary, came back the fascist and nationalist stories and, and you know, the populist politicians... Mm-hmm youngsters move to the parliament and and we afraid so of course is a, a the, our history the hungarian history is a roller coaster between the big uh, empires but before the second world war was a nationalist uh, government and and after the communist period is much more one hand better because no anti-semitism and of course, on uh, the other hand, economically, in the construction of the communism is, is, is broken and dead. And so uh, we grown up in this situation. So, but you can imagine in the 90s when, when you recognize these fantastic liberal democracies, but uh, after five or ten years, the Nazi guys in the streets, and it's, 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 it's can be, it's possible. So it's also a really dangerous situation now for the political situation in Hungary. So this is your fifth feature film, and I don't know your first four films, sadly. It's different from the other films that you made? Yeah. How? How so? Yeah. My previous movie is much younger, much colorful, much more dynamic. More contemporary situations? Uh, yeah, much more uh, realistic contemporary situation, much more social stories and dramas. But on this uh, story, we build up the, the script and the mm-hmm. developing of the story for 12 years. So we made four or three features during the period, much faster and cheaper and much more simple stories. This story, we need time. We need time to make. So not just the founding is also not easy, but but the thinking and... and uh, It was not easy. Why? Because of the government funds? Or? No, the government funds, it, it was really respectful mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. we are um, absolutely free and no censorship. And, and after the big success of the Son of Saul in mm-hmm. Hungary, we are, our young generation, much more progressive in this topic. And, and the uh, National Fund is a good filmmakers and they, they know the progressive uh, mm-hmm. movies work well in abroad is not not good if if the young uh, filmmakers make a nationalist movies so uh, i mean it's always uh you know sad for me in in some way because i think that hungarian cinema is just a great great national cinema i mean very few countries if you just generalize uh Thank could really much. take their national output maybe it'll lead after uh, Second World War, whatever, but it could take their national output and really compare it. Just a number of really s- incredible, brilliant filmmakers who have come out of Hungary, and more people should know it. <laughs> oh, we work on it. So <laughs> now the Hungarian cinema is coming up, and um, every year we are competitive for Oscar and uh, in big festival. Mm-hmm. We started the, in this movie in Berlinale, but in Cannes and also on big mm-hmm. festivals, a lot of young Hungarian filmmakers. 
So, and with this movie, we made a big festival round. We got a big uh, prize, Yad Vashem Prize in Jerusalem Film Festival and several big festivals. And we are uh, started to distribution in the United States. It's really big thing for mm -hmm. us. We start in, in New York in, in November, limited release because mm -hmm. it's a, a long runner movie. And now we almost half million dollar box office. So it's really big thing. And things for us. So how has making this film changed what you want to do in the future? Of course, the second generation is really important the, in the education and the cultural uh, events and the cinemas. They, they need to know about our grandparents' stories. It's, 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 I think this is the most <laughs> important. But uh, also... Re really important the actuality of the movie I'm always afraid because I'm an East European guy and uh, so we need to learn I believe we we can you're listening to Worldview I'm Milo Stelic I've been speaking with filmmaker Ferenc Torok whose new film which opens today is called 1945 thank you very much thank you You can check out 1945 at the Music Box Theater and Landmark's Renaissance Place Cinema. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, and we'll do some chatting with the folks who are helped putting together the U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here. He's one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. Good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Nari has suggestions on what to do for your international weekend, and where are we going for the first suggestion? Uh, the first suggestion, we're going to actually to Senegal. There is a group of Senegalese women that have an organization here in Chicago, and I guess a couple of days ago, on April 4th, Wednesday, uh, they actually celebrated the country's 64th Independence Day, and they raised from the French rule, liberation from the French rule, and they actually raised their Senegalese flag over at the Daily Center. <laughs> and then they're having a party. Senegal forever. Senegal forever, exactly. <laughs> Viva Senegal, I should say. Uh, anyways, but uh, there is a, there will be a, a party tonight uh, starting around 8 p.m. and it will go on till 3 a.m. tomorrow morning at the Grand Ballroom uh, located at 6351 South Cottage Grove in Woodlawn. Okay, so what I've learned there is the Senegalese women know how to party. They can stay up till 3 a.m. Absolutely, absolutely. It sounds I, like that'll be fun. I think some. Of, I, I sometimes think some of these partying kind of a music traditions that we see that Latins are infamous for. They actually come from 
West Africa. And I went from my trips to West Africa. I think they're, they're actually the biggest partiers in the world. The Latins get a bad name just simply <laughs> because people know more more about Latin America than they do about West Africa. Yeah, we should do a show about that sometime. What, what, what country is the biggest partier? The biggest partier. <laughs> we could have a call. So we, could, we could really stretch that out. Right? Yeah, I think Middle East and West Africa could give Latin America a run for its money. <laughs> so, But anyways, that's another thing. All right. Our next uh, chance we're going here for this weekend is uh, we're going to Venice, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, we're going to Venice. And when I was in Venice couple, about 20 years ago or so, I overstayed my uh, stay over at the Venice Film Festival uh, and hung out for the Architectural Biennale over at the, Ven- uh, over at the, uh, over at the Gardens, the Giardini over there, and uh, for a day. And it was a fascinating thing to see. It was kind of like a world expo kind of a place, but focused on architecture and creativity and innovation. And we've got uh, two of the people who are involved in the U.S. Pavilion at this year's Venice Architecture Biennale. Uh, Anne Louie is here. She's assistant professor in architecture and interior architecture and designed objects at the School of the Art Institute at Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. And Jonathan D. Solomon is here. He's an associate professor and director of architecture, interior architecture, and designed objects at the School of the Art Institute, Chicago. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having us. Um, how do you guys get hooked up with this whole thing? How do you get involved with the Venice Architecture Biennale? <laughs> do you just, just kind of like hang out? or uh... <laughs> uh, If only. Um, mm-hmm. the, the U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale is um, the, the uh, commission is given by the U.S. State Department. So the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and the University of Chicago uh, worked with a uh, curatorial team uh, Anne and, and her colleagues to submit an application uh, last year, actually, to uh, first the National Endowment for the Arts uh, and then to the U.S. State Department for review. Uh, and we received the commission to curate the pavilion this summer and have been hard at work on it ever since. Is it a little bit uh, like a contest that people uh, submit an idea or do they have to respond to an idea that the State Department drums up? How does that work? It is a competitive bidding process. And, of course, the Venice Architecture Biennale um, itself is larger than the commission for the U.S. pavilion. It's a... a uh, it is, in fact, the world's largest and and most um, visible international exhibition of architecture, and it's really many exhibitions. It's a it's a Chicagoans listening might be familiar with the Chicago Architecture Biennial. Yep. Uh, it happens every two years, uh, uh, the opposite year from from the from Venice. Uh, in Venice, also there is a large, single, large curated exhibition with a theme. And then there are a series of national participations that take place in in national pavilions scattered throughout the gardens on the east uh, side of the city called the Giardini. Uh, This year's theme was free space. So the the bid uh, did respond to that larger theme, but in very general ways, because what we're really doing is representing uh, the best and and the most innovative work in, in American architecture today. Uh, and how do you do that? Who do you pick to do this? Because it's a, there's a big crew that's going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll start and say um, the theme for the U.S. Pavilion this year is called Dimensions of Citizenship. 
Um, for us, this is an absolutely urgent question. And I think what's exciting is that we have seven um, artists, architect, landscape designer teams that are going to explore this question of citizenship in the built environment through a range of ways. Um, and so I think uh, what's really exciting about our teams, which include both um, architects from Chicago, including Studio Gang, uh, Amanda Williams, Andres Hernandez, um, but also from all over the U.S., uh, DSR, uh, Studio Teddy Cruz, and Fauna Foreman. Um, all of them are kind of uh, research-driven practices, and they represent a kind of really broad range of ways that we can think about architecture and belonging, both from the scale of working on a shoreline and Kate Orff's work all the way to kind of community-driven projects, if we think about uh, the work of Amanda Williams here in Chicago. Nari? Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the process. You know, how do you how does the tabula rasa get addressed? You know, you are lucky enough to be to get picked for this, and where do you start for the uh, where do you start for this? How do you want to represent U.S. and also about definition of citizenship? What definition operating definition of citizenship do we start with, and who is the citizen that we're trying to address? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the big question, right? How do we organize an exhibition about this really this really big question? Um, for us, there's kind of two main questions in the exhibition. One is, what does it mean to be a citizen today? Which I think, um, as we've seen in kind of U.S. and international conversations, is a really urgent topic, right? Um, and then the second question is, what is the role of architecture specifically in kind of researching, understanding, and then starting to intervene in these qu conditions of belonging? Um, I think for us, we've noticed that um, in kind of recent, recent urgent conversations, whether that's the U.S.-Mexico border wall, kind of issues of sovereignty at the, at the airport lobby or, or Confederate monuments um, or, or Black Lives Matter taking to the street, the built environment and architecture has always been at the heart of these questions about citizenship. So that's why we think it's urgent for, for architects to um, start to be part of this. We've organized the exhibition around seven different scales. So we're kind of moving beyond the definition of the citizen solely at the scale of the nation state, but asking what it also means to belong in, in a neighborhood, in a voting district, or in a watershed. Um, so we'll look at architecture and belonging from the scale of the body to the scale of the cosmos. And each one of our seven uh, commission teams responds to one of these scales. Wow, that's an interesting, fascinating organizing principle. You know, it's uh, when people think of uh, big-time architecture, they think about skyscrapers and mirrored buildings and uh, big-time awards. But if you're talking about citizenship, you're talking about urban design and every aspect of uh, how our built life affects our our being in our in our state, I guess. Uh, how do you how do you own that when you go, go to the, like a big time architecture thing that seems to be geared towards uh, you know superstar buildings? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the question I think what you bring up is that our lived experience of citizenship and belonging is defined maybe on one hand by buildings, but also by kind of a range of other pieces in the built environment. So I'm thinking specifically of Studio Gang's work for this exhibition. Um, they're looking at a site called Cobblestone Landing in Memphis, Tennessee. And this is a site that kind of historically um, was uh, where where ships docked um, to kind of like unload cotton bales. So on one hand, it was like heart, the heart of the Memphis economy. On the other hand, it's also a location where slave ships docked, right? Um, and the kind of cobblestones that are present on the landing uh, were both kind of part of the, the kind of economic boom of Memphis, but also speak to the fraught and kind of difficult history of the city. 
Um, so I think what's really exciting is Studio Gang is pointing out that architecture and the kind of construction of civic space or civic monuments can get all the way down to the grain of a single cobblestone, right? And in a cobblestone, we can unravel kind of histories of the city, of belonging, and the kind of future of civic space um, going forward. Um, and so I'm really excited for design to not just talk about mirrored buildings and, and skyscrapers, but this, these kind of uh, broader ways that architecture and design can kind of shape more, more inclusive cities going forward into the future. I'm talking with Anne Louie uh, and Jonathan D. Solomon, and you're having this event, this send-off event. It's Tuesday at the Chicago Cultural Center. It's at 9.30 a.m. in the morning. And what's going to happen there, Jonathan? Well, thank you. Um, we'll be uh, hosting a presentation by the curators and a conversation uh, between the curators and uh, two of our exhibiting teams, Studio Gang and Amanda Williams and Andres Hernandez, um, with Shawnee Crow, with uh, working with with Chicago artist Shawnee Crow, um, as w- uh, and hosted by uh, uh, Yasomi Umalo, who is the newly appointed uh, curator of the Chicago Architecture Biennial, um, helping us draw a connection between these two projects. So it'll be a chance to hear about the exhibition and about uh, some of the specific works that we'll be showing from Chicago exhibitors in detail. All right, it sounds like fun. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also curious about your approach to team building. Uh, when did you decide to go beyond the borders of architecture and bring in mm. landscape people and mm-hmm. artists? And uh, when? Uh, how, how does that team building occur? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. Um, you know, our seven exhibitor teams came with us uh, with the proposal. Um, we're, we, we've really always felt that these were the kind of um, right right firms and teams to kind of speak to questions of belonging. But I think as we've been talking about um, issues of community, of, of, of architecture and citizenship, they don't kind of necessarily stay within the bounds of, of what we think about as the traditional bounds of the discipline of architecture, right? So we're also showing five films in the pavilion that will be from artists um, and interdisciplinary practitioners, from filmmakers, mm-hmm. kind of pointing to the fact that um, there's no th- – that that there's no way to talk about citizenship and the built environment today through solely traditional architectural means. Um, We're really excited um, in the end that this exhibition also kind of extends the bounds of architecture. So um, talking about the kind of ways architecture can, can, can speak to these questions of citizenship um, in ways that we don't always expect. Now the Venice uh, Biennale runs until the fall. Mm -hmm. So your exhibit will be up through all this time, and yeah. there will be all sorts of crazy news events, and it'll kind of <laughs> represent the U.S. to all these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what are you thinking about that? Is yeah. there some kind of idea about, like, we're trying to represent a United States that says yeah. this thing, and yeah. in the news, there might be something entirely different going on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard any year to represent the United States, right? And this year, especially so, to represent the United States uh, during what we see as a troubling administration. Um, but I think that we're trying to situate this conversation not just in the current moment, but within a kind of like longer history of uh, a longer history of conversations about citizenship. We've been asking ourselves how we belong for millennia, and it's also important for architects to shape the kind of future of questions of belonging. Um, so. I think what we're excited about with the exhibition is that um, it gives context to some of these conversations and kind of moves beyond the present moment and looks at practices that have been kind of working on these questions for, for decades now. 
This year's U.S. team seems to be very Chicago-centric. And uh, is Chicago really the gravitational center for this kind of work? Yes. <laughs> okay. Jonathan, I'm sure you have a very unbiased opinion on this. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, the uh, yes, Chicago is um, has historically been and, and um, remains a center of the architectural universe. In this case, um, it's exciting to see uh, a theme which... At the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, our president, our school president, Alyssa Tenney, speaks about producing citizen artists and designers. And it's exciting to see this question of what does it mean to be an architect and also be a citizen, in spe- specifically meaning what are our responsibilities as an architect to one another, what are our responsibilities to a community, um, what are um, our rights and um, and privileges as um, as as citizens at all of the scales that um, Anne has spoken of. It's exciting to see that question get worked out in the context of Chicago, a city which has really been at the kind of leading edge of you know architecture. We we buildings are large, um, they're expensive, they're complicated. They seem to us to last a long time and. Um, so we tend to think of architecture as a kind of a stable thing, but architecture as a discipline is evolving constantly. And Chicago has been historically at the kind of leading edge of those evolutions in technology and in style throughout the 20th century. This is another one of those evolutions for the discipline. It's a moment when architects are asking themselves fundamental questions about what they do, um, where they do it, um, what their responsibilities are, not just to one another, but to our, our larger community and, and, and to a larger ecosystem or environment. Jonathan Solomon is associate professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's a representative commissioner at this year's U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. And Anne Louie is a assistant professor in architecture at uh, the University or the, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago as well. And she is a curator at this year's U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. And you can go to their event on Tuesday at the Chicago Cultural Center at Tuesday at 10, at 9.30, and you can check out the send-off to the U.S. Pavilion for the Venice Architecture Biennale. And uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.